0: Uh, Folks are really kind of grabbing their longing for certain kinds of experiences, like experience of community, going deeper into oneself for contemplation, for embodied experience. They tend to be going to a lot of different places and then remixing them for their personal use. So I think you're really noting something important at the trend towards personalization, frankly. But, of course, there are downsides to that, which we also see, in terms of, uh, you know, first of all, having to craft one's b- own bespoke personal, spiritual and religious life is difficult, burdensome. And uh, so many people are just bereft from the pathways that used to teach us how to do that. That's what tradition does. They're just pathways laid by other humans to uncover sort of spiritual practices that make for a meaningful, flourishing human life.
1: Collective Insights is a voyage through topics and technologies revolutionizing human well-being. Groundbreaking approaches for a better world and a better life await you. Welcome to Collective Insights.
2: Today's episode is with Reverend Sue Phillips from Harvard Divinity School and the Sacred Design Lab. We really wanted to dive into what is the nature of American faith, belief, and belonging in the time of the rise of the nuns, where literally the nun of the above. The spiritual but not religious are really the now the fastest growing and largest denomination in america and sue was a treat to talk to uh, we really talked about what they've done at sacred design lab with uncovering what the soul needs uh, how we can reintegrate our experiential practices everything from raves and edm to psychedelic renaissance to breath work to soul cycle to yoga within the traditional spiritual communities and how millennials are really mixing and matching and innovating. And at the same time, there's something really precious and important to, to bring forwards from traditions. Uh, the idea of what is antinomianism, which is literally a fancy word for a simple idea, which is, you're not the boss of me. And as people are becoming more and more spiritual but not religious in the sense that they are seeking their own direct experiences of the sacred, of the numinous, of the divine, of the sublime, how do we have that relationship with authority? And interestingly, some of her thoughts and comments on the Burning Man community and culture, which is now a worldwide movement. And specifically, there's this giant wooden man that gets burned at the end of the festival, but no one will tell you what the man means. And Sue has some fascinating thoughts on that. And then finally, in the sense of very specific to this program, Homegrown Humans, which is, you know, where have we come from, who are we, and what do we do now? Is this question that Sue really speaks into, which is, is there a way, is there a a way that scales, a way that grows fast enough and wide enough uh, in time for all of us to remember our purpose So it was a real treat to talk with Sue, and I think you'll get to see and feel kind of why she is a minister of her flock, in the sense that even in our dialogue, I felt held, seen, encouraged, it was really friendly, it was far-reaching, and a ton of fun. So if you're curious about the role of faith, belief, and belonging in a world that's gone off the rails, uh, check this one out. Today I'm happy to welcome the Reverend Sue Phillips, uh, the Ministry Innovation Fellow at Harvard Divinity School, as well as the co-founder of the Sacred Design Labs and the joint partnership between the Fetzer Institute and Harvard Divinity School, How We Gather, which is a project on millennial faith, uh, belonging and community in America. So uh, Sue, uh, thank you for coming. Welcome to Homegrown Humans, it's great to have you.
0: What a pleasure, Jamie.
2: Well, there's, there's so much. I, w- I was jotting down notes in preparation for us getting to chat and, and I literally just have kind of a, a fire hose of inquiries, follow-ups <laughs> on your work. I think you're in one of the most interesting kind of overlapping places. I heard you have described yourself as sort of part design geek, part strategist, part monastic, um, and that really feels like um, sort of a, <laughs> in both a very rich place to locate yourself in, in the culture uh, and, and also one with a lot of significance these days. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I think you know there's been tons of press on the, you know, the recent, you know, the sort of ongoing Pew Research Foundation studies on religiosity and faith in this country. And obviously, one of the milestones mm-hmm. that we crossed uh, a few years ago was the idea that the nuns, the sort of none of the aboves, spiritual but not religious, became the sort of the fastest growing, and also now, you know, for the first time, the largest. Um, portion of our population, you know, and there was a lot of sort of death knells for organized religion, uh, the kind of collapse of meaning that we've been seeing. Mm-hmm. So, so just orient us a little bit before, before we kind of jump into some of the details. What, what is your sense of that demographic shift, and, uh, and, and how do you sort of see that it came about, and, and where is it pointing us?
0: Sure. Well, ev- anybody who pays attention to American public religion has noticed those pew numbers just going down and down and down for years and years, probably 15 or 20 years at this point, especially among mainline uh, Protestant uh, denominations. And the the evangelicals are a little bit of an outlier, but um, across the board, those numbers have been going down. And I think one of the reasons we've been so curious about what's happening is to ask ourselves the question of, okay, institutional membership is going down. That sort of institutional mediation of people's experience, which is, you know, those membership numbers that Pew draws from are really um, institutionally mediated numbers. So we began to ask ourselves, well, what are people doing who are not going to traditional religious congregations and temples and and mosques? Uh, and this is where I think the real interesting. Uh, grist is revealed, is not so much that those numbers are going down, but to look at where people are actually going to, to get the benefit that they used to derive from congregational membership. Mm-hmm. So there's no question about it. Um, institutional membership in religious communities is tanking and does not show any signs of slowing down. There are a couple of little pockets of exceptions to that, but otherwise... Uh, millennials and Gen Zers simply are not going to the same places that they used to go for for meaning making and for all those jobs of uh, that religion has traditionally accomplished. And one of the things that I spend my days, along with my colleagues Casper turkile and Angie Thurston, obsessing about is we certainly do not assume that the longings of the human heart have changed in any way. <laughs> so the question is, where are people going? for those old religious jobs. And that's what we're currently obsessed with uh, uncovering and discovering. But mm-hmm. there's something really revealing too, um, Jamie, about the names that have been used to describe those large demographic slices with the nuns and the spiritual but not religious, because yeah. we're defining them, of course, by what they're not. Mm-hmm. And I think what we're gonna see in the next 10, 15, 20 years is growing sophistication and understanding what those folks are, how they're expressing themselves religiously and spiritually and where they're finding um, meaning and purpose uh, in fresh new ways. We're seeing a lot of really exciting things in the landscape.
2: Beautiful. Well, and, and let's actually just uh, take a moment. You talked about sort of the religious jobs or essentially the, the pro-social, the sort of anthropological functionality of faith. And, and while yeah. the sort of the four horsemen of the new atheists, you know, the Christopher Hitchens and Sam Harris's back then, you know, were kind of tap dancing on the grave, of the end of superstitious, yes. opiate of the masses kind of religion, you know, there's a lot of other really considered work in, in sociology and other disciplines that show, hey, believers, regardless of what you believe, are often healthier, wealthier, happier. There is there is a, there is a pro-social mimetic function to belonging yes. to a community of practice, um, and. In the book that I'm writing right now, which is called Recapture the Rapture, so it's an it's an effort to kind of explore this collapse in meaning. um, I kind of dug around, and I'd love to run this past you. But what it seemed to me, you know, there's obviously a thousand ways to slice and dice it, but that if there were three core functions to what belonging to faith has and holds that are really useful and we don't want to lose, it's inspiration, healing, and connection. You know, Mm. if you if you put in the kind of the the Greek or the Christian sense, sort of ecstasy. You know, the, the, the encounters of awe with the numinous, catharsis, the ability to profoundly heal, and communitas, uh, the ability to feel truly connected to brothers and sisters. Um, how does that track for you in your own assessments, and, and, and does that feel like a, a decent place to kind of begin our exploration?
0: Absolutely. I mean, I feel like any attempt to uncover what the soul needs is a worthy effort these days. And you've given those three names to it. We tend to use, actually, they're quite corollary. uh, Mm -hmm. At Sacred Design Lab, we roam around in in belonging, becoming, and beyond is the triptych that we use. It's not Mm -hmm. terribly dissimilar. A lot of those are analogous to your categories. But an attempt to uncover what is it that the soul needs and how can we begin to design and build for those needs in um, some some fresh new way? So I am totally down with your uh, mental model, Jamie. Let's go for it. <laughs> well, and actually, please just please just re-say those, and, and
2: even just give us a quick uh, a quick headline on the Sacred Design Lab, because I mean, even just the naming of that seems fascinating. So so please restate those your three Bs, and then just tell us yes. a little bit more about what are you guys up to uh, at the lab.
0: Sure. Well, Sacred Design Lab is a research and development lab that attempts to design for the human soul. And of course, one of the first things we need to do is understand what does the human soul need and how can we express that with enough dimensionality that it's enriched, but not so much dimensionality that we we get too specific to cast a big tent to describe a broad swath of human needs. So that's where we landed at Belonging becoming and beyond. So belonging we define as uh, knowing and being known, Mm -hmm. loving and being loved, belonging. Beyond is uh, growing in our capacity to become the people we're called to be. And we use that word call very carefully. We might might play with um, long to be or want to be, but becoming the people that we are called to be. And beyond is our connection to something more, Mm-hmm. We've landed on the something more language, obviously, because we want to have room for spirit and God, but also room for nature, for um, values, for character, for all the sort of broad um, theologies that might fit into that category. Yeah. So Sacred Design Lab really helps um, design for those human needs. We help solve business problems, develop new products and experiences, and um uh, organizational uh, strategy that helps uncover those needs and uh, design for them.
2: Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. So, so I mean, I have so many questions and we can go Come on, let's a- have it. Any, anywhere we want, but one of, my, one of my thoughts and certainly something that I tracked uh, in the previous book I wrote, Stealing Fire, which was basically all about the kind of rise in community and culture around altered states, non-ordinary state experiences, Mm -hmm. and whether that was Vipassana meditation or breath work or whether it was transformational festivals like Burning Man or any of these kind of things, really seeing this kind of upswell of non-denominational sort of almost highly experiential, antinomian Mm -hmm. sort of almost agnostic Gnosticism to string a mouthful of words together, but I think you follow them, right? (laughs) The idea is you're not the boss of me, I don't want hand-me-down truths, I want to go see for myself, right? And mm-hmm. we want to have some form of initiatory experience that nonetheless we kind of shy away from naming or defining, you know, um, rigidly. Mm-hmm. So, so one of my questions is, is techniques of ecstasy, to use kind of Machia Eliade's old phrase. Um, and Michael Pollan recently right, wrote that book, How to Change Your Mind. And, and he made a nod, He's, he was quoting someone else. He was quoting actually Jonathan Ott, who was this kind of renegade pharmacist at Berkeley for years. But he was talking about how the Eucharist is fundamentally these days, at least, I'm in our current context, is a placebo sacrament. That in the consumption of it, there isn't actually a reliable state shift. Uh, there isn't mm-hmm. actually a direct, you know, and you, compa- you know there isn't, and you compare this to like the Good Friday experiment. At Harvard, back when with Houston Smith, you know, and, and all the others of psilocybin in church, and the idea that that, that was a, you know, that eight of the nine um, folks at the Divinity School who participated went on to become ministers. None of the ones who who received the placebo uh, went on to become ministers. The notions of the Native American church, where Quanah Parker famously testified before the Oklahoma Senate, and he said, you know, when the white man goes to church, you talk about God. Uh, when we go into the tepee, we talk to God. So there's this difference between third-person encounters with the numinous versus, you know, the, the Martin Buber "I Thou" or even the "I I" of the Mystico Unio, you know, of Hildegard von Bingen or something else. So, so what we have, I think, is a bunch of youngsters, you know, out from under the thumbs of the, their elders, seeking what they would nominally call, you know, sacred experiences in highly secular. Environments, uh, you know, and mm-hmm. with with the, with the sort of the transformational festival scene, et cetera, et cetera. So, how do you see? Either, well, how do you contextualize those experiences in your own realm, and/or is there a fold to bring those folks back under, or do we need to stretch the tent even bigger to include that kind of experiential, non-denominational seeking?
0: Yes, what a good question and way to drop a whole range of theologians across the centuries to serve the question. First of all, we speak the same language. Well, for one thing, to connect it to the demographic shifts you mentioned at the very beginning, one of the things we've noticed over and over again is that millennials and Gen Zers are very comfortable unbundling and remixing Mm -hmm. those religious jobs. So instead of a one-stop shop like your local temple, where they would get a whole suite of services um, and experiences meant to... Um, appeal to all sorts of senses and um, ways of knowing, you know, epistemic approaches and um, experiential ones. Uh, folks are really kind of grabbing their longing for certain kinds of experiences, like experience of community, going deeper into oneself, for contemplation, for embodied experience. They tend to be going to a lot of different places and then remixing them for their personal use. So I think you're really noting something important at the trend towards personalization, frankly. Mm -hmm. But, of course, there are downsides to that, which we also see, In terms of uh, you know first of all having to craft one's own bespoke personal spiritual and religious life is (laughs) difficult burdensome and so many people are just bereft from the pathways that used to teach us how to do that Mm -hmm. that's what tradition does there are just pathways laid by other humans to uncover sort kind of spiritual practices that make for a meaningful flourishing human life mm-hmm. so on the one hand you've got like generations that are increasingly bereft of those pathways needing or wanting or longing to sort of create their own but wondering where to go find them mm-hmm. so it doesn't surprise me at all that we're seeing um, a trend towards sort of immersive intense experiences that are like this Uh, one-off blast-off into Mm -hmm. uh, sort of altered states and ecstatic experiences, partly because that is what people know to to recognize as a spiritual experience. Mm -hmm. I think part of what gets lost in all that, Jamie, is that spiritual practices really are meant to be slow burns. Mm. They're not meant to induce, I mean, broadly speaking, not meant to induce an immediate altered state. Mm-hmm. That's part of why we call them practices, <laughs> because their value accretes over time. Mm-hmm. And it's in the, um, the, the intentional return to ongoing practices in community mm-hmm. that, I mean, most of the religious world would claim is part of the recipe for that fulfilling life. So on the one hand, we've got we understand why people are, are seeking experiences like that, but wow. I would like to place it in the context of loss, that it's mm-hmm. not embedded in a more fulsome um, uh, environment replete with a wider range of opportunities to grow one's soul over time.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and to me, I mean, I, I, to me this feels like um, the sort of the latest chapter. It's 21st century, it's kind of wrapped in silicon and smartphones and, and all those kind of things, but it is mm-hmm. that, ongoing tug-of-war between the sort of the priests and the Prometheans you know that there's always been the fire stealers there's always been the ones storming heaven and then there's often Mm -hmm. been the priest class saying hey that you know that upsets our orthodoxy we are the self-appointed middlemen to God don't you dare try and do an end run and whether that's Joan of Arc you know or St. John of the Cross or you know you name it right it's generally hasn't been welcomed with open arms when people name or claim an I-thou relationship or an I-I relationship. Third person hand-me-downs, okay. Tool of social control. The <laughs> second and first, pretty sketchy and often really, really repressed quite strongly. So how do you, and, and you made that, you made a great case there. You said, hey, I think they call them spiritual practices for a reason. But that, I, I want to tease apart, is that just, you know, shut up and say your Hail Marys? Or are there actually spiritual practices that reliably disclose access to the sacred that have either atrophied, fallen away, um, or that could be innovated and adapted? I mean, compare this to like a core power yoga or a soul, soul cycle, right? And, mm-hmm. and, and you even mentioned the evangelical, you know, the exception to growth. Protestant mm-hmm. mainline sagging, even you know, and Catholic, mainline mm-hmm. Catholicism outside of colonial places you know also collapsing mm-hmm. but evangelicals the more experiential elements are actually booming and thriving and you know throw in the kind of easy examples of hillsong you know which if you look at that's where justin bieber and the kardashians and a lot of pro nba players and things have been going they've got you know in fact i think gq did an article called hype priest and it was talking about the, the hipster priest the skinny jeans mm-hmm. and the earrings and the leather jacket oh yes that, right the whole thing and if you look at their services, their services are indistinguishable from an EDM concert. You've got smoke cannons and huge production value and jumbotrons and amazing sounds, so they are leveraging techniques of ecstasy. You know, sex, Mm -hmm. drugs, rock and roll. Minus the sex in these situations, right? But they're definitely definitely harnessing, you know, light, sound, music, breath, concerted movement compared Mm -hmm. to smells and bells you know, it feels like mainstream folks don't have a chance. So what is your sense of (laughs) how to reintegrate the direct and experiential practices that everyone seems to be going out and seeking anyway um, Mm -hmm. within something resembling a lineage tradition? Is that possible?
0: Well, it is in my judgment so true that the traditional religious communities have been completely flat-footed in terms of robustifying their delivery systems for the f- human wisdom that they are the stewards of. And what we see in, in Hillsong and, and many evangelical communities is a lot wider palette of sort of idiomatic expression, which is so ironic, of course, because the, the theological core is so tends to be so orthodox and the transmission of that core also tends to be orthodox, which is held in authority. I mean religious liberals are much less attached to authority, mm-hmm. obviously almost by definition, but much worse at delivering um, the stories and, and the, the methods, if you will, of um, of those practices in a relevant new way. So, I mean, to me, that's a problem, not of content, but of delivery system. Mm-hmm. And I think Hillsong, for example, has sort of nailed, in, in, in some ways has nailed the delivery of ancient technologies and i think to think about ancient technologies might be a helpful lens here because when i hear about hillsong or i go to temple on friday uh or attend other religious services i see a cosmology of religious practices there's song there's text study there's preaching or interpretation. There's naming of wisdom teachers. There's multi generational connection. There's a sense of a built um, set of practices over liter- literally over a year where there's a liturgical arc and liturgical mm-hmm. calendar. So to me, that's an alphabet of spiritual practices that different religious communities put together in different ways. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what folks who go to Burning Man are doing too. All those elements, and I, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush, but a lot of those elements are very much in place. Mm-hmm. It's how they're being delivered that is dramatically different. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about reintegration, Jamie, I don't have a lot of hope for mainline <laughs> denominations and traditions, especially in the United States. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's any way to redeem that those ancient those old congregational delivery systems, but oh. I do think there's tremendous potential in um in deconstructing those spiritual technologies and putting together p- putting them together in fresh new ways so mm-hmm. when I talk about tradition I'm as much talking about the birthright experience of that um, cosmology of practices as I am about any bit of um, theological content, mm-hmm. which is going to get me in a lot of trouble with religious conservatives that I'm mm-hmm. so willing to toss the one out with the other but it does mm-hmm. make a palette available to us to put together in new ways.
2: Yeah, and I noticed in one of your footnotes, you, 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 you cited very explicitly Clayton Christensen, the Harvard Business School professor, his book The Innovator's Dilemma, and that just that idea of like how hard is it? because I mean, you know, at any institution, but certainly a lineage religious institution is by definition conservative. Something amazing happened back when, and we are trying to conserve or preserve the truth of that teaching. And how can, and how can you ever compete with fast and loose disruptors? who are coming in you know and saying we're just going to start from current reality with no sunk costs no institutional inertia and we're going to speak directly into this zeitgeist and capture it it's a little bit like you know the, the I mean it's a, it's a story that doesn't truly hold up but it's like the idea of you know the the minutemen of boston you know, adopting techniques from the Indian Wars versus the Redcoats starch. You know, marching down the you know the 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 parade grounds of Lexington. You know, and getting clobbered. You're like, how on earth do you ever compete with
0: basically um, theological guerrilla warfare? <laughs> well, what you see as new, I see as old. Um, so I'm not quite as willing to think that people are actually inventing new. New ways of entering into this content. I think mm-hmm. it's just the 21st century expression of what has probably always been true about humans is we're mm-hmm. grasping to put 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 the world together in a way that we A find ourselves in and B helps us feel the way we want to feel. That yeah. we probably do agree on. Mm-hmm. But you know, Jamie, we we've gathered hundreds of innovators over the years, spiritual and in, in community-building innovators, and mm-hmm. we've asked them over and over again, what and these are folks who who lead what are in essence spiritual communities even though they may not call themselves that sort of communities oriented around meaning and we've asked them and to, just just give us a few examples need... what what sort of what kinds of sure. communities are they sure like uh, the big quiet which is a a new york and now national uh, mass meditation effort mm-hmm. which um, convenes meditations in places like um, Madison Square Garden and oh, wow. New York Public Library and uh, museums and big public spaces or the Dinner Party, which is a um, an effort that gathers people ar- uh, around tables throughout the country, kind of hosted eight to 10-person small group tables to talk about experiences of personal loss. And there are hundreds of examples of communities like this doing super creative things. Mm-hmm. By the way, totally divorced from any traditional denominational structure or delivery system of traditional religion, but nonetheless doing similar jobs, just to go back to Clay Christensen's framework. Mm -hmm. Um, And we've asked them, what do you need to really thrive? Because these are sort of independent efforts that are not well connected in community. And other than business models for ongoing economic sustainability, what we heard from these leaders is that they are absolutely longing for elders. They do not feel accompanied by folks who have attempted to do the same things before. And what's more, they they don't feel that they have company in their life just to witness their own struggles as leaders and to grow in their capacity as leaders. What they're asking for is not coaching. It's not traditional expertise, let me deliver to you how this should be done. Mm -hmm. It's really literally just being accompanied as humans. Mm -hmm. So I bring that up as an example because... I. I don't buy the fact that these one-off ecstatic experiences are actually that satisfying over time. They may result in an altered state that expands our imagination for what's possible and therefore allows us to pursue it, and I don't want to discount that. Mm -hmm. But when we pluck those experiences out of a package of spiritual technologies, that provide a more fulsome experience, like elders and and sort of the transmission of wisdom, Mm -hmm. we actually lose dimensionality. And I am not arguing for that dimensionality on theological uh, orthodoxy grounds. It's Mm -hmm. not to transmit belief. It is to transmit knowledge that a a more complete package of practices is more powerful over time to help our souls grow into the people we're called to be. Yeah. So I know that that was a lot of words, but I think that that dimensionality gets lost in these one-off attempts, and I think that's I think that's important. When we can design for that, mm-hmm. then I'll agree that we're nailing it.
2: Beautiful. Yeah. There's there's so much in in what you've just said. There was there's the livelihood business model element, which I'd love to come back to because you know suddenly I think you could make a case that the spiritual marketplace has has never been broader, more varied, or more captured by market forces. Mm-hmm. And so there's there's an issue there, and, and I'd love to to explore, um, you know, what are some of the solutions you're potentially seeing. And then there's also this notion that you've come back to a couple of times, which I think is essential. And it's and it's to take a very tidy case study. It's the it's the key thing I see conspicuously absent in the psychedelic renaissance, is that people are using compounds to have, you know, by any other term, sacramental experience but then getting spat back out into a life with no practices and, most specifically, no ethic. There isn't a sense mm-hmm. of in-service of what. And mm-hmm. untethered from that, which has never been true in all of human history, any, any sacramental initiatory experience has been closely governed, closely chaperoned, all sorts mm-hmm. of um, you know, onboarding and integration, pre and post, yeah. and a filter mm-hmm. of elders, making sure you got what you were supposed to and didn't go off on a jag. And mm-hmm. instead, you know, we're more in the situation now where we've sort of found the, the toy box full of firecrackers, you know, and we're just setting them all up, like breaking the sticks off the bottle rockets and, and hoping they'll go where you point them. And, 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 That's and, right. and they tend not to. So given, you know, and, and, and there's another thing where you mentioned the elders and the yearning for elders. Um, I'm a, I'm a Gen Xer. We grew up in the Reagan years. It was relatively slim pickings. And so we had to look back to the baby boomers. We had to look back to the beats and the counterculture and the, the civil rights movements, the anti-war movements, um, the, the back to the land movements. Like That was sort of our fodder. And I almost, in retrospect, it almost feels like we were like Japanese blues aficionados or something obsessing over American blues because we didn't have it ourselves you know so we went back and we studied that stuff because because we were in such a dry spell ourselves I'm noticing that millennials seem to have a generation gap amnesia about what the baby boomers did and I imagine it's because it's their parents and so nothing your parents did could be relevant or cool and what I've been shocked by especially in the Progressive, again, the sort of you know you can you can peg it as West Coast conscious culture, you know, but but you know it, it's it's all over the place, which is putting it into all the same ditches. Lots of magical thinking, lots of deference to guru-like, you know, people. They're, they're Instagram gurus now <laughs> versus, versus li- living on an island someplace. But how do we how do we reconcile the acute? antinomianism like the literally the you know resistance or refusal to defer to authority figures the echo boomer kind of you know resistance to study the lessons of the past and yet a yearning for eldership at a mm-hmm. time where everything is just in time, like literally don't even make me sit through four years of college, I wanna to go to YouTube or, or Khan Academy, like, like I am unwilling to be dis, you know, un- disengaged, bored, or submit to anything other than what I want right now. How do we balance eldership, a world of ethical commitments that supersede our own experiences and,
0: and, mm. and somehow steer this greased pig <laughs> to the finish line. <laughs> First of all, um, I wish I knew the answer to that question. But what what we can do together is kind of gesture towards some some clues. And of course, what the 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 set of traits and problems that you've just described are, to my mind, examples of essentially how we are hardwiring through technology and other kinds of um, mediations brains and hearts of younger generations that make it less likely that they will seek and find what the soul needs. Mm -hmm. This is part of why I'm going to map all those behaviors right on to social isolation, Mm -hmm. mental health crises, and the, the, the sort of other epidemics of, um, that we need to have a major cultural reckoning for that. These are, to my mind, these behaviors, um, are, both the problem and the cause of the problem so you're asking how do we how do we recreate a world in which folks can access wisdom about how to live this meaningful life when folks are sort of intentionally disavowing mediated experience whether that's from authority or other other transmission Um, honestly i i think in the end the longing for what people know they need will dr- bring them back to traditional pathways, not not necessarily um, theologies and specific texts, but for looking for those through ways to help them get a grip on what they most need in their lives. This is one of the things that has always confounded me about these demographic changes, Jamie, which is that youngers have always demonstrated Um, behavior of stepping away from traditional religious communities for Mm -hmm. example even in the 50s and 60s if you had um, if you there are only a few studies but the few that exist suggest that people who are younger especially in the 20 to 30 year range go to church and follow those traditional pathways in lower numbers than they do when they're older Mm -hmm. so I do want to say I don't think this is necessarily a permanent shift among youngers I think Mm -hmm. um I I do think we're gonna see some return, frankly, as uh, there's a, a maturation in their ability to name their own experience and to look for the places that hold um, possibility for them to actually meet those needs over time. So that sounds very altruistic in my view that sort of folks grow into their awareness of their own needs and then they, they go and find it. But when we combine that with, the, with what I hope is a cultural effort to begin um, improving the distribution network, if you will, of some of those ancient technologies, we've also got a reaching back. And I think it's that combination that might make a difference over time.
2: Hmm. Yeah, and I mean, I think it goes back even further than the '50s. I know, in, in you know, taking a look, I don't, I'm sure you know uh, John Butler's "A Wash in a Sea of Faith." You know that that sort of. I don't tell me about it. Gosh, I think it won the National Book Award, or at least a, at least a history award back when I was in, in grad school. But it's, it's basically his survey of American religiosity through the 17th to the 19th centuries, and you know, just goes deeply into the Second Great Awakening, Cane Ridge, Kentucky, mm. you know, all of those kind of things. And, and ironically, I mean, I gave a I gave a TEDx talk at Burning Man, teeing like describing that event as you know with no with no historical tells as to when it happened, Ah. and and it matches Mm -hmm. one to one to Burning Man. It was in August. It was tens of thousands of people gathering on the western frontier of the country. At that point, it was you know Appalachia was the outer edge. Um, They had they had so many people that the preachers had to build scaffolds. And they would stand mm-hmm. up in them and they would whip the crowds into frenzies and trance not unlike the djs these days there was <laughs> drinking and fiddle playing and fornicating it was it was a mayhem party and the conditions were a second second and third generation bunch of immigrants completely dissatisfied with the anglican and catholic churches and the face they came from convinced mm-hmm. that their parents were out of touch and they didn't want to submit to that authority anymore and wanting to yeah. dust it all off and create a bonfire of their own lived experience and that led to the suffragette movement, abolitionism, temperance. <laughs> it led to a lot of social justice <laughs> movements through the 19th century. And you're like, okay, so this is fascinating parallels and there is re- truly nothing new under the sun. Um, and and so one of the, I mean, I've got, again, so many questions for where to go on this, but. One of the questions, I, you, you wrote a, a really interesting piece on covenanting and the, mm-hmm. idea, the idea of, I mean, and I think, you know, if there's, a, if there's a theme we're trying to tease out here, which is, you know, freedom plus responsibility. There's an awful lot of access to freedom these days, liberating mm-hmm. technologies and experiences. How might we, how must we balance that with commitment and commitment to ourselves and our own practices, to our community of practice and potentially to the broader world. Well, first of all, just wind it back. Let's, get, let's do some John Winthrop original covenant, halfway covenant. You know, do we need, do we need the quarter <laughs> covenant now or do we need to actually go back to a full covenant?
1: And,
0: and what does that look like in your mind? <laughs> well, you're you're refer- referencing some of our um, early American settlers who came together uh, in the seventeenth century as the Massachusetts Bay Colony was being formed. And of course, there were churches, uh, parishes and in, in, in every settlement uh, in every settlement in Massachusetts. And they came together in some sweltering summer in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and asked themselves, How can we join together to support um, and grow our faith and our ability to be faithful Christians uh, in this kind of weird um, uh, settlement um, moment as we build the city on the hill? And their solution to that was, was what they called covenant. And it drew them together around some specific principles that allowed for the autonomy of individual parishes, but had some connective tissue um, and behaviors, frankly, that they promised and pledged to offer one another and to be um, have fidelity to themselves, so that there was a community of autonomous congregations. So that's a really important and, I think, nuanced construction for the 21st century, which is both autonomous parishes that were also agreeing to be subject to communal um, connection over time. And that's covenant. Um, This is the sort of the essence of congregational polity, which this whole tree of Christianity um, comes off of Unitarian Universalist, United Church of Christ. Some Baptist um, communities use this congregational polity. But the technology at the core is—go ahead.
2: Well, I was just going to ask, and wasn't one of the the, the, sort of the litmus tests to be a Covenanted Christian at that point was that you had had a personal conversion experience?
0: Personal conversion experience was more important in the Calvinist arm to display wow. one's salvation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you're you're right that theologically, um, having this ecstatic experience proved that you were sort of predestined, that you were mm-hmm. saved, which is a, a sort of a different concern. The congregational polity covenant was really about connecting communities of Christians to each other. It was less about individual experience than it was uh, on a community basis. Mm -hmm. And I think the genius of that technology is that it provides both for autonomy and connection. Mm -hmm. And that's why at Sacred Design Lab, we think and talk and write uh, a lot about covenant because, I mean, to my mind, it's an inspired solution to the challenges you and I have been laying out Mm -hmm. about how we have sort of autonomous individuals seeking their own um, sort of religious and spiritual path, but do we still stay, how do we still stay connected to each other? And Covenant is a kind of spiritual technology that can be agnostic about Mm -hmm. what are the grounds of our connection, but can still kind of knit together um, disparate individual experiences. So I think we're really onto something there about um, what the future of religious and spiritual life might look like. It might look like more like a guild of seekers Mm -hmm. coming together, not because of orthodoxy, but because of orthopraxy. So they've decided Mm. to practice in the same way and they've decided to collect themselves around that same way, even though the substance of their belief might be quite different. I mean, this approach is one of the gifts of blasting open denominationalism, which tends to be about um, um, theological orthodoxies. Mm -hmm. But when we look at orthopraxy, I think we're, we're open to fresh new ways of bringing people together.
2: Yeah, so so that's beautiful. And orthodoxy, I mean, again, for anybody that's, you know, just decoding these things in your own brain, right? Orthodonti is straight teeth, orthodoxy is straight thought, and orthopraxy would be straight or shared, in this case, practice, right? And so to me that, one of the things I find fascinating about, I mean, I'm, I'm here in Austin, Texas, so every day, I, the corner of my street is a giant mega church. They've engaged in strategic roll-ups. Mm-hmm. They've been buying up other ch- underperforming churches. They now simulcast on jumbotrons. They have a school that's K through eight, maybe now growing to K through 12, bookstores, coffee shops. I mean, it is, it is a compound. And to see it over the last decade is is, is an impressive sight to behold. And mm-hmm. the same thing with Hillsong. What I'm noticing is that um, theologically conservative institutions are actually harnessing much more of cutting-edge psycho technologies and vertically integrated business models, like literally one-stop shop. You got it. We've got everything. We've got kid care through dating, mm-hmm. through bowling, through books. You know, and, and, and we even replace. We disintermediate Starbucks. For Christ's sake, it's all here, and we leverage the power of tithing, right? 10%, folks, you know, we make no bones about how we gain access to working capital. I mean, if you really break it down to that, where, and and, and so the orthodoxy feels, and and the same with Hillsong, I mean, for as hip as they are, they are still generally um, anti-gay marriage, they are still pro-quite, deferential or subordinate gender roles. Um, there's a lot of stuff that gets, you know, in, in the hype priest model actually gets smuggled in that's quite regressive. Mm-hmm. And they, they deliberately haven't updated that stuff. Um, mm-hmm. And I find it fascinating that the growth sectors, this is, this is not an evolution of evangelical churches, Southern Baptist Convention, that kind of stuff. The majority of people they recruit into their communities are the unchurched. And so, and yet it's with a retroactive orthodoxy. So my question, I mean, there's, there's a, several questions here, but one of them is, um, it is typical of progressives to hesitate asserting beliefs or truths for others, which is both the gift of open-mindedness <laughs> and its organizational mm-hmm. Achilles heel. Because if, mm-hmm. if we simply practice together then we all go wandering off defining and deciding for ourselves our own personal truths and our own mm-hmm. personal Jesus and, and as a result in fact I just finished rereading Stephen King's The Stand you know because it just seemed timely and I was like and, and it was it was spookily it was like wow I'm reading a horror book and my newsfeed is kind of indistinguishable but, um, one of the things is Mother Abigail is that old uh, African-American woman who's 108 and, you know, she's basically the hand of God. And then there's this bad guy who gathers in Vegas. And the whole point was like, while we're bumbling around in Boulder having like committee meetings, you know, they're figuring out how to get like the power back on and, and how, to, how to turn on a nuclear weapon, <laughs> you know. And so how do we, how do, we do that? Um, how do we reconcile orthopraxis? Right, which is open-ended and everybody gets to decide with, you know, I think what you could fairly say is the, the, the inability of progressive faith to come anywhere near the organizational effectiveness of more
0: traditional, conservative, and even reactive sects. I truly wish that I had a comprehensive answer to that that would crack that nut for progressive Mm. um, religion of all kinds. But I could could take a stab at a couple of the elements of sort of liberal approaches to religion in general that I think contribute to the problem. And a couple of them are just our epistemology and our relationship to authority, Mm. where we have, I mean, the whole through line of how truth gets transmitted is just, it's almost what makes conservative and progressive or liberal traditions different, mm-hmm. which is how do we know what's true and who gets to say it's true? And how do we transmit what's true? Mm-hmm. And the, the structures of all three of those things in more um, conservative traditions are firmer. They're stronger. <laughs> they, they literally have more staying power. They're more consistent over time. And in the in liberal religion, where there's more a focus on personal experience, on less intermediation of authorities, less um, respect for authorities as um, as folks who own and interpret the truth, uh, all those things weaken, you know, religious liberalism's ability to provide that strong core around which you can adapt the distribution. Because in a way, in my uh, experience as a religious liberal, it is the way we are together that makes us liberal. And in more uh, conservative traditions, it tends to be the substance of the belief that mm-hmm. defines uh, religious conservatism. And as long as that's true, I think we're gonna be less adaptable with the means. And I think therein lies the difficulty. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a problem.
2: Well, I mean, and, and there's a couple of books that come to mind as you're describing that. One is, um, did you ever read "Putting on the Mind of Christ" by Jim? No, Merriman? tell me about it. It's actually neat. He was he was a gay monk, I believe. It definitely, he was he was of an ordination. I'm not a thousand percent whether he was a priest or a monk, but I think he was mm. a monk. He then ended up leaving the Catholic Church and having a series of you know, awakening experiences. And what, he, what I think is really helpful in that model is he kind of brings a developmental model similar to Bob Keegan or, or anybody else yeah. in that space and just sort of talks about different relationships to, in this case, Jesus, but it could be any Godhead figure um, at different levels of psychosocial development
1: mm-hmm. and how
2: in a traditionalist model, it'll be very code based. It'll be very much, and, and that's pretty much that's what the four horsemen you know that that's what christopher hitchens and sam harris were knocking down but then there are opportunities to come back to it you know and at a meritocratic level it might be like well hey this is my social club you know this is this is my network i i want to be participating because it matters to me in those ways and then the next level of individual or sort of communalism might be this is you know a lot of what you've just described and i think you know the last few decades of Unitarianism would be at that level it's this it's the you know jokingly it would be the sort of Whole Foods and Subaru crowd you know but it's it's saying, hey, like we belong together, let's celebrate, and then there are you know then you would get into the higher levels of direct and an ongoing relationship with the numinous and it's just neat because it at least gives people tools if they feel like, oh no, I'm a recovering Catholic, or oh no, I, I left the church. It's like you're, you did leave a church, you left a version of the church. And as you've grown, you might find you know, it's, a, it's a spiral and you might have a capacity to come back to it. But my, my, I guess the structural thing that I wrestle with is that the traditional code, law and order based model, is far better at organizing large numbers of people and getting them to march in a direction than is the in, the more individualist mystical approach, right? I mean, the Mormons got an awful lot of people to dig ditches in a desert in the 19th century because they, right, they said, stay sober, don't fornicate, here's the rules, here's the bishops, here's the tabernacle, and here's our story, now go do what we
0: say. And if you don't, then the the afterlife yeah. is uh, is a very very bad place. You're literally stricken from the good. And that's yeah. Yes, that's the ultimate ultimate um, uh, motivator, shall we say?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, well, and it's so let, let's talk about that because I I know that in one of your your situational assessments and and I, and I saw you relying on. Uh, Barry Johnson's polarities mapping, which is, again, one of my favorites. It feels like, really, you could pretty much solve the world if everybody just mapped polarities, like political parties would go away. It's sort of like, like, like it's like a nerd, it's like a management consultant's Buddhism, you know, of like, you get to non-duality being like, it's both and neither. Um, but one of the things you mentioned was, as we're seeing these non-traditional communities of practice uh, arise, and some of them aren't even brick and mortar, Uh, And you know, they're they're situational, they gather in parks, they gather at a yoga studio, they do what they do, how they do it, around a dinner table. Um, That it's tricky to justify the tithe. It's it's tricky justifying the the subscription or the membership model, right, that is effectively what churches have been. You know, the the archdiocese gets a cut, you know, Um, when they're saying, well, what have you done for us lately? And right. and how how do you, and, and, and again to contrast that with the evangelical megachurch on my corner, who's got a very good tops down funnel. In fact, have you seen them? Is it? I think they're called the, the Mighty Gemstones. Have you seen that show?
0: Yes, I have. Yeah.
2: <laughs> Crazy. Yeah, funny, really funny. And I and I read I read a thing um, by his uh, Danny McBride, who's the you know the the mulleted you know lead, lead guy, but also can the, forget the writer, right? And and he's like, yeah, we yeah. wanted to make it as accurate as possible. We we didn't want it to be a disrespectful send up. You know, but when you look at how they've done it, you're like, oh my stars! Like no wonder that crushes. Um, so what is your sense of? how how to go from orthopraxis? basically you know highly localized orthopraxis we get together and we do a thing but no one tells us what it means or what to do with it with anything resembling a meshwork or a hierarchy of more synchronized and integrated movement for a common cause
0: yeah well You've, you've named so well that what's sort of missing in more progressive expressions is a centralizing influence. And that's, there, there's not a lot that's drawing people to the center, where there's some, um, there, there's a core that people can point to as being worthy of support in and of itself. Like if you look at the, the, the congregation on your own corner there mm-hmm. in, in Austin, first of all, that is a one-stop shop. Mm-hmm. That is so traditional. It's just that the the suite of services that they provide is incredibly widespread. Mm -hmm. So you can, when you're an individual who's engaging that kind of community, you understand the value that you're deriving from the thing at the center. So not only are you buying your coffee at the coffee shop, you're understanding the the branding that's at the the center of the um, really well-integrated suite of services you're being offered. Mm -hmm. There is, of course, no corollary in the progressive religious world. There's Mm -hmm. no center. That can be pointed to as being worthy of um, fidelity. And that's the, that's the problem when we focus on orthopraxy, is that they're the, the practices themselves are too, um, too disparate to have a common core. Mm-hmm. And I think that's exactly why there's been this disillusion. Interestingly, Jamie, um, you mentioned Unitarianism, and I want to lift this up for just one second as a story. Of course, I am Unitarian Universalist, right. But the, the, the tent of Unitarian Universalism, which is a small um, denomination that has Christian roots in the United States, uh, they are covenantally connected congregations with enormous theological variety. There are Christian uh, congregations, there are atheist and humanist congregations, there are congregations of hmm. all theological stripes. Right. And that is a very rare exception about how you can contain such um, theological diversity within what what is still a denomination and the reason is covenant because they're connected by their practice of connecting by practice it's very meta mm-hmm. so there doesn't have to be agreement so much agreement on the substance of the practice but there is on the ability to be to place One's self and one's congregation and intentional relationship with others, that's mm-hmm. what covenant is. Mm-hmm. So if to the extent that I see promise for something um, emerging from the from the progressive religious world it's going to look like that. Mm-hmm. Again, just back to that guild notion. Um, but I don't think it's ever going to look like your your church on the corner there in Austin.
2: Yeah. I mean, it would just never get out of committee. No central brand. It would never get out of committee. I mean, and, and, and we look at a lot of the social justice movements these days that are, are sort of, they, they briefly rally around common cause and then end up mm-hmm. often imploding around difference and, and, and that sort of yearning, yearning for orthodoxy. I actually um, a Unitarian minister came up to me at a conference in Vancouver last year where I had just given a talk sort of on some of these themes. And he's like, I am so frustrated because everything you're saying is exactly who we are as Unitarians and what we've been doing forever. And, you know, and playfully, I was kind of like, well, sort of. But on the other hand, look at the scoreboard right now. <laughs> you know, like like, like having <laughs> having the, having the ideas are perfect. But on the other hand, like we're getting our clocks cleaned, <laughs> you know. Yes by other forces. I mean, for me, um, the closest I've seen is in, in that sort of antinomian collectivism has been the Burning Man community, in the sense mm-hmm. that you have mm-hmm. millions, literally millions of people around the world at this point who have had that initiatory experience. And I think it's, it's saving grace and it's Achilles' heel, is that no one will ever tell you what the man means right it is it is and that's and and that's different than if it had simply been a new age hippie counterculture it's got an anarchist san francisco punk rock you know like like element which will just like smack that stuff out of your hand the moment you get too precious with it um, but as a result it is also subject to capture you know so it's this wonderful anarchist open source experiment and on the other hand um Other forces can come in, and 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 for me, I mean, I guess I can't, I I fully acknowledge my own lenses. But while there's a lot of tittering and you know nervousness or anxiety in the conservative religious space, that Burning Man is this debauched, depraved thing. I think it's the most post-apocalyptic, mystic Christian ritual I've ever seen. You know, the 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 night. I mean, there you've got. The man who sits up there and everybody, you know, idolizes him, worships him, does, you know, like, like hat tip, this is the dude. But come Saturday night, it, you know, it's like, bring us Barabbas. You know, they, they were like, it, it absolutely turns and the crowd becomes the bloodthirsty, right? They want to see him go down. And it's, and it's almost this ancient, you know, it's the sort of Tom Robbins to Robert Graves. You know, it's, it's the sacrificial king. You know, and, and he now becomes the scapegoat and he yeah. purges, you know, he purges all of our sins for the new year of bounty, you know, and, and we go forth. So it's, it's fascinating to me to see how these yes.
0: things never die. And we're, we're so, um, we're, it seems to me what Burning Man is so good at getting at are what are those essential needs. You can almost see mm-hmm. the entire like liturgical um, canopy Mm -hmm. on display on the playa. And also, but one of the things that captivates me about Burning Man, Jamie, and of course, you would know this better than, than I would, but there's all these communities. Mm-hmm. Burning Man is not just a, a mass um, of colors that have no connection to one another. There's all these communities embedded in communities, embedded in practices. Each, each community has sort of a gift that they mm-hmm. offer up in service to the larger community. That's the kind of, I, I would say that that is covenantal in a way. Mm-hmm. So the connection is, you know, there, there's autonomous communities on the playa but there is a commitment to the kind of the core, um, the core covenant of Burning Man, if you will, which is not only practices, there are actual beliefs that are at the center that everybody agrees to, to be down with, at least for the time that they're, mm-hmm. they're having that experience. And I think that's why I agree with you that Burning Man is an example of th- these kind of orthopraxies at their best, mm-hmm. even though... Um, there's a kind of cataclysmic ending, cathartic cataclysmic ending with the, the burning of the man. I think that's just fascinating. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. And and also the But temple, the elements are right? there. I mean and, and the the fact the temple mm-hmm. almost I mean, I'd be curious as to your experience, you know, as a Unitarian minister, but to me it feels about as Unitarian as you could imagine, in the sense that it's it it borrows and integrates architecture from around the world. It's sort of a neither here nor there, but it has Focal points, you know, it, it had in, in a sort of Pythagorean sense, it does everything that sacred geometry always has, and mm-hmm. and it's you know overwhelmingly like if I'm ever moved to tears, it's it's in that space. It's it's the profound humanity of people putting memorials to loved ones, lost ones, um, you know, writing their prayers, and then you know, and then ultimately burning that to the ground in silence. That, that's the opposite of the Saturday night Bacchanal. It, it's it's yes. reverential silence and literally, you know, sending our prayers to heaven in the smoke. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and so a question I have, I mean, in this notion, I mean, that is very much a quintessentially American postmodern ex, you know, outburst of our experiential religiosity. You could, I guess you could make a case, I won't state that definitively, um, but if we go back to someone like Harold Bloom at Yale you know, who wrote Omens of Millennium, he wrote The American Religion, he was fascinated with the just wonky <laughs> Gnostic American spirituality you know, through Shakers and Quakers and Mormons and, you know, and everyone. Um, you know, he made a case, he said, he said, America is a Gnostic country, but it has forgotten that fact. It has literally spent a couple of centuries forgetting that it that it's at its core, is a technology of remembering, of anamnesis, of initiation. And he said it's fundamentally it's it's both hermetic, it's a secret tradition, um, and it and it's heretical, you know, because it's about anthropos. It's about like that city on the hill, that Winthrop talked about way back when, is actually populated. You know, if we take it to its fruition, to its full apotheosis, by Anthropos, you know, by Adam Cadman, by, right, the sort of what you would find in Kabbalah or, or, or the Gnostic traditions, perfected man or perfected human. What is your sense of that? That sense of, you know, if you perceive, first of all, just anything uniquely transformational and even alchemical, <coughs> Um, that is that is here in in this American tradition it's almost as if we're sort of sifting through the wreckage <laughs> you know of the last few centuries but but is is that something worth resurrecting as it were
0: well for myself i've always been more concerned with how we survive everyday life experiences than in the kind of exceptional mm-hmm. ecstatic experiences so i'm I, I can't say that I'm that interested in the question. You'll forgive me mm. for, for it would be a good Unitarian Universalist to reject the question. But I feel like, <laughs> nice. I, feel like I'm, I think what is a much more important question is how people live their everyday lives and survive mm-hmm. what comes our way. Mm-hmm. And to my mind, that's not... I don't have to re- reject the, the, the truthfulness of your premise to say... That I'm less interested in identifying trends that have to do with kind of explosions of um, of uh, anachronistic expression in, in this moment than I am in just understanding what humans need day in and day out and how they try to find what they need to live a meaningful life. And it's much less sexy. It's much less... Um, explosive literally and figuratively. Mm-hmm. It tends to be dogged in its attempt and um, every day in its expressions. And that's where I think, uh, I think that's where the real meat of this conversation lies is in how like everyday people create an everyday world of meaning around them. Uh, and when we can crack that, not Jamie, that is a world that I am mm-hmm. I'm trying to build and ready to live in.
2: Beautiful. Beautiful and, and and to clarify, um, I, I I think probably in my enthusiasm to pose the question stopped halfway. Well, um, oh, let's hear the other half. Well, well, my hope and really, you know, the the title of this series, "Homegrown Humans," um, mm. is is based on that. It's it's based on Dorothy not becoming the new Wizard in Oz. It's Dorothy coming back to Kansas. Yeah. Right. And, 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 and with helping hands, you know, like that Zen ox parable, right? The idea that we're not done if we think we're standing on the mountaintop getting the Instagram selfie, you know, we're done when we come home, you know, and all the cliches and see it for the first time, blah, blah, blah. But for me, that notion of being anthropos is the possibility of becoming a twice born human, the possibility mm-hmm. of realizing that we are just, you know, as Carl Sagan said, you know, just made of star stuff. And that Mm -hmm. this lifetime, these relationships, this community, that's the miracle. And we cease to yearn to escape it. And we come back joyfully um, with a desire and an interest to serve. and And essentially already knowing that our lives are forfeit. So, so that we are, you know, in this, and this is what I'd love to touch on with you now, which I think actually, you know, fully braids these threads, which is how we unlock what Martin Luther King called soul force, what Gandhi mm-hmm. called satyagraha, right? Because in this age where it feels like everything needs to be done and there's so much grieving and there's so much injustice and in that there's a lot of rage and there's a lot of reacting. And we're in, I think we're in real peril of even the folks who were nominally on the side of social justice um, losing their grip on soul force. And you know, we've seen the left from Robespierre and the French Revolution to Pol Pot and Mao. <laughs> the, the, like the right has no monopoly on heinous violence. We can just leave it at that. And, I've, and there's, there's a recent study I just saw that Contract, did a psychological assessment of progressive liberals, alt-right identitarians, and um, what was their term? Uh, I suppose it was militant social justice adherence. So same value set as the folks in the center of progressive liberals, but a militant orthodoxy around it. And both those far sides shared dark triad personality um, traits along with authoritarianism. Versus, again, back to our question of like orthopraxis, but no orthodoxy, the folks in the middle were saying, I believe these things, I think they're really valuable, but it's not on me to assert for another. So, so my hope would be is that, you know, can we create a something resembling a repeatable process by which many can, <laughs> you know, like, like just leave it at that, I won't yes. call it scalable, but like a way to digest our grief, and a way to open our hearts, and a way to remember what we're here to do, and then go forth and do that with love and compassion, with with the transformative power of soul force, not an eye for an eye.
0: Preach. (laughs) Preach. How do, and one of your core questions is how do we get from where we are to that? What do you think the building blocks of that are?
2: Well, I mean, you know, one harebrained scheme that I have would be literally well, like... let's have it. ...would be the, what is the megachurch disruptor? What's the Joel Osteen disruptor? It's just high time. And, and can we create um, ritual, community of practice, um, that does all the things, right? And that's movement and breath and song and verse, right? And and creates, you know, and sound and light and and you deliberately, but ethically, use those techniques of ecstasy to program epiphany, and it's actually fairly straightforward these days. And I can you, know, you can picture. A, a thousand people at a time, and obviously quarantine has kind of thrown a bit of a wrench into this, you could, you could potentially have home versions, etc. Um, but whereby, and you know, again, using deliberate ecstatic techniques, whether it's like whirling dervishes and Sufism, whether, you know, whatever it would be, chanting prayer, song, again, and, and, and synchronized collective movement. I mean, imagine like the achy breaky heart, but, but with amazing grace. You know, and, and, and creating these experiences for people. And you, know, you can even have, I mean, you can, you can have the sort of the headline, like believe what you want to believe. Just never lose the faith. You know, the idea of like, look, we're going to show you a little bit like a farm to table restaurant. Here's the neurophysiology of how we're going to provide you a momentary access to Kairos or sacred time or grace. We're not You can skin it with anything you want. Right, that's true for you, that's part of your culture or community, or that's you know central and valuable to you. And so we're not even gonna get into the doctrine. We're gonna get you to the place which passeth all understanding. And we're going to trust mm-hmm. that that place and that information source, you know, that you leave space for grace, right? We we will let the mystery stay the mystery. But then the idea that, you know, and this goes back to your ethics, that. You know, almost the the a recessional would be you know as people come out of those state experiences, for them with a partner anything like that to sort of jot down or document like this is what I've seen because it slips through like dreams you know it's very it's very it's a slippery fish pulling information from that realm into this realm without tools to anchor it. So there could be again this idea of like this I remember. That's the experience of anamnesis. Like I have. Forgo- I've, I've remembered what I forgot. Mm-hmm. So this I remember, and today I begin again, you know? And just that sense of like, yes. it's, it's a hard world out there, you know, and it's crunched me down and, and bent my back, yeah. but today I stand tall, you
1: mm-hmm. know, with my
2: brothers and sisters in, in praise and remembrance and now i commit to whatever this next six days until our next sabbath you know whatever it might be i commit to bearing witness to the best of my ability
0: and we just see how that goes i love that so much i love the focus on memory and remembering because there's that sense that the the wholeness is out there and in here we only have to remember that it's there kind of Resync that taproot into the place that no matter what's happening in our lives is still there, mm-hmm. and then commit to, to behaving as though we believe that were true. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, how about this? I was saving, the, the, I hesitate to say the best, but certainly one of the things I'm most intrigued by these days. Because if we're thinking about what does an open source, scalable, mm-hmm. um, anti fragile, meaning 3.0 look like. Because if you say meaning 1.0 was traditional faiths, and we've seen the collapse of them, if we've said that even that meaning 2.0, and, and that was based on salvation, that was always the promise, but it was for a tribe. You had to belong to be saved. And if meaning 2.0, you could sort of say was the Enlightenment experiment, neoliberal free market democracies. And we've really seen that getting a little, a little ragged and jagged these days. And less and less people are really signing off on full faith in that. Um, but that was based on inclusion. That was the that was the genius of the Enlightenment, but it, it canned salvation. So how do we combine in meaning 3.0 inclusive salvation? Is that possible? And one of the, you know, one of the sort of thinkers that has intrigued me the most around that is Tila de Chardin and his no- mm-hmm. his notion of the omega point and the idea that um, is it possible that, you know, the alpha in the beginning was the word, right? I mean, the, the religion's pretty good on that one, um, and it's pretty hard to falsify. Um, but the omega, the end, has really been up for grabs, and it feels more up for grabs than ever as to what it's going to look like, what it means, um, who wins, who loses, <laughs> the whole bit. And we're seeing that with QAnon, we're seeing that with anti-vax conspiracies. We're seeing that in the void of Mm -hmm. faith, Mm -hmm. we're making up a Mm -hmm. bunch of whack-ass shit. (laughs) And and not all of it is helpful. Um, But Deshaudan had that idea that I'm sure you're familiar with, which is that the body of Christ is all of us at the end of time. Unique, Mm -hmm. like increasing, not dissolving into the soup or the Borg, profoundly unique in our gifts, right? But connected Mm -hmm. in our shared recognition of this moment. And he said he said there's going to be three intersecting arcs. You know, and, and we won't know how this goes to the last minute, which is the arc of the carrying capacity of the planet, which I thought was pretty profound for someone in the thirties to 50s writing about this. But he mm-hmm. says that's one. And then the other is basically those drawn to say yes to this prospect and those mm-hmm. opposed. And and it's going to be a crisscross crash. And then he even goes as far as saying and it has to be this way or the redemption of it wouldn't be that interesting. It wouldn't be good enough. <laughs> or it wouldn't work. Yeah, and you kind of think like yeah. for, for, for generations raised on Death Stars and X-Wings, you know, and, and Death Eaters and, and, and Hogwarts, you know, and even Matrixes and machines, like we're wired for this.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: We really are, like a small band of rebel misfits against all odds at the eleventh hour you know pulling pulling victory for freedom you know from the faces of darkness
0: and left to our own devices we come up with some really crazy shit <laughs> <laughs> this is part of why i feel like tradition has been is is such that the whole transmission of of practices and pathways of encountering these realities is so vital, precisely so that we do not have to make up our own stuff. Mm -hmm. I mean, the greatest liberation I have experienced as a spiritual person is in not having to create my own religious world, is actually beginning, Mm -hmm. because I was unchurched, beginning Mm -hmm. to appreciate the gifts of tradition that I can take and put together with a community of other people to create a life that is genuinely flourishing. Mm I am so delighted I did not have to make stuff up. I would certainly be as capable of of coming up with uh, just wackadoodle theories that nonetheless scratch the same itches and uh, as the as um, as religion has in other centuries. So mm-hmm. I, that's my hope. My hope, and I'm going to come back to that word of remembering, because I think in a way there are so many opportunities for us to tap into what what we can remember if only we get a little help mm-hmm. from from traditions of the past. Again, only in terms of the practices, not so much in terms of the beliefs, although I, there's a lot of flourishing communities that are rooted in those beliefs that I would never wanna diminish with my refusal to center orthodoxy. But, Jamie, I, I think that's a world that we can create, and I hear you asking over and over again, how do we do it? And why has why has progressivism and liberalism failed so completely? To do well, what religious conservatives seem to have seem to be doing better.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and 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 I guess that there is a. There's. It feels to me it's almost like um, chill banes right now, or you know, like when when you're a kid mm-hmm. and you're out sledding and you don't even notice that your fingers are numb, and then you go back inside and that and the blood comes rushing back and it just hurts like hell, and it yes. feels like collectively, we are. Waking up to things we were numbed to. and it hurts like hell. But it's actually that's actually a sign of lifeblood returning, right? It was the numbness that could have really harmed us. and and at the same time, it feels like Dr. King's legacy, for instance, that notion of soul force, the notion of taking a stand for the infinite game, for inclusion for everybody, mm. is mm. under siege. <laughs> excuse me, and not, and not just under siege by the people in obvious opposition, under siege by the folks on the progressive side of the fence who are saying, mm, he was a patsy for, he pandered to white religiosity. He he mm-hmm. suppressed uh, the, basically social justice underneath the banner of polite Christianity and faith. Um, we need something that's angry, that's unapologetic, that's unyielding. Um, what is your sense of that, that legacy of, of King? And, and he was obviously drawn he drew on the Bhagavad Gita, he drew on Emerson and Thoreau and, and the Unitarian movements, he, he drew on all of it. And to me that feels profoundly and essentially American, but it also mm-hmm. feels like it's potentially more at risk than maybe it's ever been
0: mm mm-hmm. Well, first of all, I should say I'm not a scholar of the civil rights movement uh, in any way, but what i what I understand and have a have a gut sense of is that you know one of the shorthands that James Cohn, the great black liberation theologian, has given me is through his through his books is a sense that Malcolm and Martin Malcolm X and Martin Luther King were part of a continuum of response to the movement moment in the 1960s and that Martin Luther King was actually super tactical and strategic and intentional in his what he drew from and what he inspired and who he was trying to inspire to activate change. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't have any illusion that Martin Luther King thinks that that should be the only tactic in the in that vast continuum. And I think In a way, we're faced with the same kind of questions, is like, what is the range of responses to systemic injustice? And I don't see Martin Luther King as isolated, but as a part of an ecosystem of responses to those injustices of which he was a part. And there were more radical, um, literally militant, literally people bearing arms with the Black Panther. So. I guess I, I, I have some core faith that it's actually that range of responses that we need, partly around that polarity mapping and management mm-hmm. that you talked about earlier, that yeah. there's something essential in the, in the solution that will really bear fruit, that we have that range and that they stay in tension with each other and that there's something very um, dynamic about the search for that equilibrium and the process of discovery within that, even if we don't land in any one place. Although I, I hear you loud and clear raising some flags about how the extreme left can begin to look like the extreme right, yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and my sense is, is that um, there, is a, there is a sort of, we, we are all choking on our undigested grief. And the, mm, that grief truth. Is, is, is increasing. And in fact, um, a friend and, and colleague of ours, uh, Zach Stein, who was at Harvard uh, mm-hmm. Ed School, um, he recently said in, in a book, you know, we are entering an era where billions will watch while millions die. Mm. And, mm. and that sense of just crushing, overwhelming realization of, of the pain of human experience. For me, as try as I might, I mean, I, in college and grad school, I studied all things, everything but the European and Western tradition, <laughs> everything but. And, and I went to the Boulder bookstore uh, and saw Rabbi uh, Zalman Schachter uh, give, <laughs> give a talk and he was talking about his experience and he, he had been you know, in the 60s up in Manitoba, he had discovered LSD as a sacrament, he had gone pretty much off the grid and off the reservation into Sufism, he became an ordained sheikh in, in Sufism, um, Buddhism, the counterculture back to the land movement, and he was telling the story of going back to the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, and he was having a bit yeah. of a crisis of faith. And he's like, okay, Lord, um, what should I do? What should I do? And, and every time he prayed into silence, this voice came, said, but Zalman, you're a Jew. <laughs> and, he, and he would ditch it, and then he would, tr- he would try and rationalize it. And, and, and again, but Zalman, you're a Jew. And so he was like, oh, fuck, okay, I can't hide. I can't deny my lineage, I can't deny the culture and the customs that I came up in. This is my faith, as much as I've wanted to push it away. And, and I've felt overwhelmingly like that, uh, my, my whole, I suppose at a minimum, young adult to adult life around Christianity. It was the sense of, back to that traditionalist thing, having very little time or belief in the orthodox bureaucracy. Of the last 2,000 years, but constantly getting pulled back to the archetype of the Nazarene and realizing, you know, it felt like Buddha was sort of like the Roger Federer of enlightenment. You know, he was so effortlessly graceful. You're like, are you really even working at this, buddy? You know, like, I'm not feeling the same thing I feel when I try to do what you look like you do and and like Lao Tzu you know you're like amazing but like he just shows up he's he's completely out of time he's fully formed and he's just this laughing mystic completely attuned to life and anytime you screw it up well that's because you weren't with in line with the Tao and you're like okay that neither of those gives me a whole lot of guidance on this highly ambivalent clusterfuck that is my life <laughs> and and so this the, right so, so the 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 notion of the Christ has felt profoundly resonant and it feels like that intersection Mm. of Kairos and Kronos, like we're in this Mm. world, but we're not of it. You can feel Mm. as filled with grace and possibility as possible, but you're there nailed to the tree of being Mm -hmm. born, dying, seeing everything you love turn to nothing, of being betrayed. You know, of, of being filled with doubt, of feeling abandoned, and having to do it anyway willingly. So, so for me, I guess that, that's my question: is is there space for a a cosmic Christ? And and again, the branding issues are so pronounced that my sense is like the Omegans. That that that's where Desjardins really has lit it up for me. I'm like, oh well, maybe we could call it that. You know, like is there, mm. is there space for the Omegans at the end of time? Because, you know, and, and like as we march each other home, because like the other crazy thing, for me at least, is that the, the cultural touchstones that to me speak most poignantly about the Christic initiatory experience aren't from Christianity at all. It's like Pema Chodron, mm-hmm. you know, Tibetan mm-hmm. Buddhist nun. And mm-hmm. she says to be mm-hmm. alive is to be continually thrown out of the nest. You know, mm-hmm. Leonard Cohen, a, 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 a Zen Jew, is saying, you know, there's a crack in everything. It's where the light gets mm-hmm. in. A broken, mm-hmm. you know, and a perfect hallelujah. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, mm-hmm. Chongzi in China is like joy bathing. You literally, we heal ourselves through the experience of bliss and joy, like wabi-sabi in Japan. Like, you're like, oh my gosh, I think this is everywhere. I don't think this is a stitch-up from the Middle East, and I certainly don't think it's it's some... Um, preacher man, you know, telling me how to live. It feels so universal and so essential to the human experience. So, so um, yeah, I mean, uh, that's my question. Is, is that possible? Is there a chance to, without enforcing dogma or doctrine, to share truly the good news that, that for all of us, around the world, there's the possibility of being a Megans together. There's a
0: possibility of walking each other home. Humans have been asking that question since the dawn of time, is what what is that? And how can I get there? Can you please help me? Can we go together? Can the people I love, will the people I love be there waiting for me when when we get to that place? And what gives me hope that that's possible, honestly, Jamie, is thinking of the, this world as a cathedral stained glass window. You can see that's that's one of the idioms that make that matters to me. Full of refracted light, mm-hmm. barely bounded, merging colors together, and believing that there are so many expressions of that longing and that um, the the kind of human transmitted chances we have to discover both that longing and um meeting it you just you just gave us a huge range of cultures times places idioms beliefs uh, theological frameworks and i genuinely like to see that all part of that same stained glass window Mm -hmm. where It's the reaching for that, that I think honestly is the core human condition, not the finding, except in rare cases. And I know that your life has, in some ways been devoted to the finding and the intentional um, reconstruction of experiences that will get us to that next experience, that next level so that we can expand our imagination for what's possible for us. I love that so much, what a worthy pursuit. And at the same time, I feel like it's the longing that makes us who we are, not the, not the achieving. And if we can find ourselves in good company as we're longing together, to me that is, that is everything. That's the whole thing.
2: Beautiful, beautiful. Thank Perhaps.
0: you. Well, it's no, a frightening it, and scary place to live though, isn't it? Oh
2: yeah, and, and, and to be sure, um, I actually, if I've been some advocate for like climbing mountains in, in real life as well as, as metaphorically, um, it's because it feels really fun, something to do. And the views give us more of a sense of life down on the flat. Yeah. Um, yeah. But everything you're advocating for is actually where my heart is um, more and more and more. I feel it. And, yeah, I feel it. And, and it just feel, that feels the missing link. It feels like getting high is pretty easy these days, staying high yeah. and
0: even more to the point, um, getting grounded is, That's right. is the magic. Living with yourself when you're not feeling high is yeah. I think the challenge of all challenges. But you, the way that you articulate that, that horizon is everything to a longing people that that's that could be enough. Being able to name that horizon that we're that we're aiming for, that might be enough to keep us going. And you do it very well.
2: Mm. Well, thank you so much for, for everything. I mean, I wanted to talk to you about. I mean, maybe we'll, I'll even just say it because what the hell, we're here. But um, the Church of Beyonce, that Grace Cathedral, I, I'm sure you must have.
0: Fantastic. Yes.
2: See. To Fantastic. Me, right. It's that is everything. So rad. It's things like that where you see those kinds of innovations and you're like, okay, so that's for women of color. That's LGBTQ folks. That's that's everybody welcome. Um, And and my sense and I and I just kind of dropped this stitch when we were talking about Anthropos because I didn't want it to feel esoteric, individualistic or overtly ascendant. Um, Because my sense is, is that in our in our living tradition in America is the sort of Arcana Americana is is this you know which is the which is our redemption songs you know yeah. and it's mm-hmm. and it, do you know that dolly Parton tune traveling through did you ever hear that uh, i don't think so i will, I will send you the link because she i'll got, look it up she, it, it it was for that um it was on the soundtrack for trans america that that movie with like felicity yeah. huffman but it is it's gorgeous and and she does it at the oscars she's just by herself on stage and she just brings that house down and Golly. And it's and my sense is, like, but juxtaposed between, like, Dolly and Beyonce,
1: you know, yeah.
2: is the entire African-American spiritual <laughs> tradition, jazz, blues, gospel, country, folk, and it's all the same. It's all, I've been down so goddamn long, it looks like up to me, mm-hmm. and I rise mm-hmm. up singing. It's like, it's like I'm going to tell you my woes, and, and, I, and we're going to rise up singing. And that, to me, is, is to, like, if we have you know, something in our back pockets right now that is, you know, like a superpower. It feels like that. It feels like those redemption songs.
0: I think you're onto something. There are glimpses there of the way that we um, can give expression to the things you and I have been talking about yeah. in fresh new ways that just feels so important. Anytime we can name Beyonce and Dolly Parton as like yes. theolo- the theologians that they are. yeah, So grounding too so grounding. Um, that's, that's a, that's a space I want to live into. Awesome.
2: Amazing. Sue, thank you so much.
0: Thank you, Jamie.
1: This episode of collective insights was hosted by Jamie wheel and produced by Jacqueline Loera. This podcast is for informational purposes only. The podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. You should not use the information on the podcast for diagnosing or treating a health problem or disease or prescribing any medication or other treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider before taking any medication or nutritional, herbal, or homeopathic supplement. And with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition, never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you have heard on this or any other podcast. Reliance on the podcast is solely at your own risk. Information provided on the podcast does not create a doctor patient relationship between you and any of the health professionals affiliated with our podcast. Information and statements regarding dietary supplements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration and are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to therein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician. This podcast is owned by Neurohacker Collective.